Why don't you open up your Bibles to Numbers chapter 5. Hashtag in the wilderness. We're calling this study through the book of Numbers. Why are we calling it that? Just because it's what we do. It's not necessary. It's not spiritual. It's just a thing. <laughs> you might say, Rick's in a mood this morning. Oh, I'm in a mood. I woke up 10 minutes before my alarm. That's just so wrong. I'm not sure which is worse, actually, waking up to the alarm, ah, you know, or waking up before and going, oh, I lost 10 minutes. Well, <laughs> Numbers chapter 5, let's just uh, get a sense of where we're going. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away, both male and female, you shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. And the sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. Oh, Father, Lord, um, we have much to learn. We have yet, I think, Lord, to fully comprehend your holiness and your perfection, your absolute pure grace and your 100% unadulterated righteousness. You are flawless, as your word tells us God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And Father, it is only because of the blood of Jesus, we can even approach you this morning. Help us to understand that. And Father, in understanding, I ask you to continue your purifying work in the lives of all those who follow after you, all those who trust in the name, the precious name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. Purify, strengthen, change, make us holy that, Lord, we might be in your presence. And Father, for the world that does not understand, and for those who have yet to believe in Jesus or trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, I just pray truth would be heard. Whether it's here in this auditorium this morning, uh, online somewhere, today or, or sometime else, Lord, we just align ourselves with your desire that every person repent coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and be saved because we know that's your heart. So we're all ears this morning, Lord, and open hearts. We ask you to teach us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are still in the packing and prep section of the trek. First 10 chapters of Numbers, as we have seen, is all about getting ready to go bemidbar, that is, in the wilderness, the Hebrew title of the book. So we still haven't set out yet. The Lord is still teaching. He does a, a, a huge amount of teaching to help the people be fully prepared for the journey ahead. And this morning, as we come into chapter 5, the whole focus is purification, how to keep a clean camp. Because the wilderness is not a clean place. The wilderness, in fact, is quite dirty, quite filthy. How to keep a clean camp. You see, purity matters. Purity 
matters. If you've ever seen tap water down on West Beach, you know. Purity matters. Our uh, water dispenser on our refrigerator went, back, went out back in the fall. And then slowly after that, our refrigerator just started dying this slow, painful death. And, and that's, a, that's a whole different story. But we bought one of those water purifier pitchers. You know the ones. You can pick those up, and, and it's got the little thing in the middle, and you put the, the filter in it. And then when you pour the water in and it comes out of it, it comes out nice and pure to drink. And I didn't like it. I, I did not like it at all. The taste was terrible. And after about two months of using this thing, we realized we hadn't put the filter in. So there's your problem <laughs> right there. Purity matters. It makes a difference. Maybe you've seen this. According to a recent viral TikTok video, so that tells you how uh, you know, significant this actually is, but no, according to this video, and it's all over the place, all over the news, there are cockroaches ground up in your store-bought pre-ground coffee. So a little extra protein there for you when you're having your morning coffee. Yes, cockroaches that get in there and get ground with it, and what are they going to do? They just send it out that way. Hey, purity matters. Purity matters. And if it's true with water and with cockroaches, how much more does purity matter with the heart? And it truly does, especially in terms of morality and spirituality, things that are world dives headlong in opposite pursuit, away from. The Bible says in Psalm 24, verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I, I think we could say quite literally it is a requirement to see God. You will not see God. You will not come into the presence of God with an impure heart. The Bible has a lot to say about purity. Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Titus chapter 1, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Or as we already read this morning, but I want to read again, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him that is Jesus. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And John says this, and it is so powerful, please don't miss it. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. What does that mean? John says that the hope in the imminent return of Jesus Christ is the key to a purified life. It doesn't detract from a purified life. It is purifying just in longing for, in, as Paul said, loving his appearing, and looking forward to the coming of Jesus makes you want to be pure. It changes you. It impacts you. Expecting him at any time 
should have a deeply purifying effect on us just as he is pure. Just as he is pure. See, that's, that's really the point of being made pure. Being pure as a follower of Jesus Christ is not about how you look or how you feel or how inwardly moral and upright and upstanding and righteous you are. Being pure has everything to do with the fact that he is pure. And the only way we can walk with him is in the light of his purity. Well, let's think this through. Just walking down the chapter, we're going to do all of chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to see three or four uh, different areas of purity that the Lord calls for. The first couple or three, we go walking through, you'll say, oh yeah, okay, that, well that makes sense, that's good. And then we'll get to the, I think it's the third or fourth one, I think it's the fourth one, and it's just weird. I mean, this one, let me just say brace yourselves, because this is one of the weirder ones, which makes it really exciting for me. Verse 1 again. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and every one who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female, send them outside the camp, so they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. This is not about making people feel bad. This is not about condemnation. This is about cleanliness. Because in the midst of the camp, there is a pure and perfect and clean and holy God. Send them outside the camp. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. Number one, if you're following this through, clean out the camp. Before they even take their first step in the wilderness journey away from Sinai, God says, you need to keep a clean camp. So on an ongoing, continual basis, you need to clean out the camp. Clean it out from disease. Clean it out from discharge. Clean it out from anyone having anything to do with or dealing with the dead. Clean it out. And, and you might note there was no discrimination. I appreciate that. Both male and female, if you're unclean, you're gone. <laughs> Leave the camp. Get outside the camp. That's not a permanent eviction. Understand that. It's not kick them out and they can't come back. It's if a person is in a state of uncleanness, which God covered at length throughout Leviticus. If a person's in a state of uncleanness, they need to step outside of the camp until they can be made clean. And then in their cleanness, they can return and go right back to their campsite in their tribal areas of the camp. But if they're unclean, they need to step outside the camp for a time. Why? Because a pure and perfect God dwelled in the center of the camp. Again, reminding us that our cleanness is not about us. It's about him. That my being clean is for his presence. That he can be comfortable and at home in my heart. He desires a pure heart because he himself is pure. So for the holy God to travel in the midst of his people, whether Israel in the day or the church now, the camp must be kept clean. we got to keep a clean camp. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, said, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. He is so absolutely pure, he cannot be anything but pure. 
which is so far beyond our comprehension and our understanding, you can wash your hands and within seconds shake hands with Paul Anderson and be dirty again. First John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. There's not a shadow. There's not a hint in a corner somewhere. He is perfect, pure, absolute light. John says if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie. Why? God can't be in the darkness. So if you're walking in darkness, you're not in fellowship with him. It's as simple as that. He says we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I like that, running into each other in the light. Oh, you're here too. Wow, I wouldn't have expected that. You know, we're together in the light of his presence. And the way we maintain that, the way we stay that, the way we have that fellowship together is because the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, so we walk in the light not because we've achieved a certain amount of lightness of being. No, we walk in the light because his blood has cleansed us because his blood makes us pure to be in the place where he is pure. That's a clean, well-lit camp. That's what God desires, a clean camp, ready to walk in the wilderness because, as I already said, the wilderness is anything but clean. This wilderness world that we are in right now and this season of the church age is a season of great uncleanness dirtiness and immorality and, and filth. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 says, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Saints, by the way, means holy ones. It's proper among saints because we're supposed to be holy ones. He says, no filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. That's, that's what we're called to. Paul says, for this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Why? Because those are filthy things and God is pure. And the filthy cannot be in the presence of the pure. The dirty cannot reside with he who is absolutely clean. Now, someone might hear that passage, Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, and say, yeah, see, that's the Christian thing. Your Christian purity takes all the fun out of life. That's, that's the problem with the church and those Jesus followers is they're so uptight and somber. Want to go to church with me? Oh, that sounds fun. Wow, when we think that, we have so missed it. Jesus said in John 15, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, uh, being joyful does not sound like a drag to me. In fact, being joyful is what people really want, what they long for. They're just deceived into other things like happiness. The right to be happy, you know? And they'll do foolish things to try to get to that, that 
buzz of happiness that is temporary, short-lived by human achievement. And all the while, Jesus is saying, look, abide in my love. Keep my commandments, and you know what will happen to you? You will become joyful. Well, that sounds good to me. Clean out the camp, and the camp will be filled with the fullness of his joy. This should be the happiest place on earth, my friends. Gathering of believers should be the most joyful gathering anywhere on the planet. So clean out the camp. Verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins, which he has committed. And he shall make restitution in full for his wrong. And add one-fifth to it. That's a double tithe. And give it to him whom he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. So second thing, as we clean out the camp, heading into the wilderness, God says also with that, confess and compensate. Confess and compensate. The, the sheer act of confession, can you imagine the knock and knees of the people of Israel listening to God say, listen, I want you to confess your sin. <laughs> Lord, we know what happens when people sin. Why would we want to confess it? You know, it's what keeps a child from telling the truth to a parent. Did you take that from your brother? No. <laughs> Did you take it from your brother? No. What the child is thinking, if I say yes, I'm dead. Why would I confess? You know what the beauty of the grace of God is? We can confess into his grace. We can confess because we have grace. Because the forgiveness is just waiting. The forgiveness is already there. And he calls for confession. Now, Jesus' people are, for the most part, familiar with the term confession. Whether we actually do it or not is the other question. But we're familiar with it. We hear the word confess, confess your sins. You need to be confessing as a people. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you all know when you finally confess and you get free of that, of that dirt in your life and you receive the forgiveness of Jesus, that's joyful. What a wonderful place to be. And in light of such cleansing, James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. So again, it's not confess and wait for judgment to fall. It's confess because your forgiveness is assured. Because in Christ Jesus, we've already been forgiven. And God is saying, I want you to confess, not so that you can be shamed or condemned. I want you to confess to get the dirt out so that the dirt is not in your life, so you can be clean. But understand, part of confession is compensation. It's not just confess. It's confess and compensate. Or in verse 7, he shall make restitution. What does that mean? Confess his sins which he's committed and make restitution in full. For his wrong, if you've stolen something from a neighbor, not only are you to give it back, 
but you're to add 20% of the value to it and give that to your neighbor. <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is a completely different mentality so often than we have with confession. We think, good, confession, I, I, I just get it over with. God says, no, I want you to confess and make it right. Part of confession is compensation. Even today, this is not just an Old Testament theme or idea. And I hope you've been picking up so far, going through Torah law, that we realize God is consistent throughout. From Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to 2021, God is consistent. He doesn't ask for one thing here and then forget about it later. And we may not be under Torah law. Yes, we are under grace. But the principles of the law and the reason God gave the law in the first place was to teach spiritual principles by which we can live right now. Confess and compensate. What does that look like? Remember Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Climbed up in the sycamore tree to see what he could see. You remember the story. It's in Luke chapter 19, and he's in that tree, and Jesus is coming through the town, and Zacchaeus just wants to get a look of, at Messiah. Clearly, he is moved to see this man. There's something about this Jesus he wants to see and know. And Jesus stops under the tree and looks up, and I just it's one of the scenes I want to replay in heaven. I don't know if it's going to be on Blu-ray or what, but I want to watch it. Jesus looks up and says, Zacchaeus, yeah, <laughs> I'm coming to your house. Let's have lunch. And so they go to the home of Zacchaeus, and they're not even there yet. They're on the way there. And Zacchaeus turns to Jesus. Luke 19, verse 8 says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. I think Zacchaeus knows the law. I think he knows there's a law of adding a fifth to it. And Zacchaeus says, no, no, I'm not going to pay a double tithe. I'll pay a quadruple tithe. I will give back four times as much. And what did Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Oh, I see. So when we pay off God, he saves us? No. Absolutely wrong. He doesn't say salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus has earned, has earned it. He says it because Zacchaeus has learned it. Salvation's here. How do we know, Lord? Because of the way he's acting. He gets it. This is a saved man. These are the behaviors and the actions of a saved person. Today, salvation has come to this house. Knowing he had been forgiven, accepted, and freed allowed Zacchaeus not only to confess, but to make compensation. To make it right, to go above and beyond. And that's the point, that a clean camp, a clean heart, requires full contact confession. Full contact it's not about playing flag football. This is, man, get, you, you hit it hard. Confess and hit it hard. Confession is not just about getting something off my chest so I can feel better. It's about going out of my way to confess and then to seek to make things right with the one to whom I confess or the one that I've wronged. Going beyond, to, let's, let's make it even better than it was before. It's John the Baptist once said, Matthew 3, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance isn't repentance if there's no fruit of it. If nothing comes of it, if you go, oh, I'm sorry, and then go right back to doing what you did before, it's not repentance. 
It's not confession if you say, yeah, I did that, and then you do it again. But if we repent and our lives begin to change, we confess and we seek to make things right because we have now the freedom to do so. That's what we're talking about. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. I love the way he puts it, by the way. He doesn't say if you're giving your gift at the altar and you remember you have something against someone else. That's typical. Oh, I, I do have a problem with that person. I better make it right. That's not what he said. He said, if you know they have something against you, go make it right. He says, leave your offering before the altar. Go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come present your offering. Why? Because then when you present your offering, you're doing it from a free heart. Makes the offering more joyful when the relationship has been reconciled. Whoa, okay, but what if my brother or sister refuses my attempts to make things right? I've gone to them, I've tried, and they just won't accept it. What do I do then? Well, that's simple. You bring the, the compensation to the Lord. You give it to Jesus. The brother won't take it. You take it to the Lord. Again, verse eight, if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest. Besides the ram of atonement, by which atonement is made for him. You bring it to tabernacle. You give it to the priest, or, or in this case, the pastor. Pay me off, man. <laughs> it's not what we're talking about. You all know how we do giving. The giving is between you and the Lord, and, and if there's a compensation to be made, give it to the Lord. If in seeking reconciliation, your brother or your sister will not receive it, then you give it to the church. And I'm not just talking money-wise. You give your service. You seek to make things better in your church fellowship with your brothers and sisters. You bring it to the Lord. Which brings us to the next point of a clean camp. Verse 9, also every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his. So every man's holy gifts shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. So number three, contribute to the camp. You want to keep a clean camp? You do so through cleaning it out, through con uh, confession and compensation, and through, number three, contribution. Contribute to the camp. Now, listen to this for a minute. It's not about tithes and offerings, and yet in some way it is. I think it's about the true heart behind any kind of contribution to the camp. God knows how we tick better than anybody else. He knows how we think, he knows what we're about, and he knows what keeps us dirty. And a clean camp, or in our case, a pure heart, requires, and I use that word intentionally, requires gifts and contributions. You want to clean out your heart, you are going to, at some point, have to start contributing I would say you really want to clean out your heart. I'm not saying you want a clean heart because giving and tithing makes you clean. That's not what I'm saying. You want to clean out your heart. You want a truly cleansed heart. Start tithing. It'll clean you out, man. <laughs> That's kind of funny. I, I started tithing and it just cleaned me out. It, it will. It will purify 
in in a, a surprising way. Why? Listen to this. Because the heart, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, is more deceitful than all else. God knows this. And is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. But I want you to listen something, to something here. We've quoted that verse actually quite a bit. We recognize that the Bible says every human being has a sin nature and every heart is desperately sick and deceitful. That's just the reality of it. But listen to the context of this heart word in Jeremiah. Listen to what he's talking about. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its root by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Oh, it's beautiful. What a picture. And then the Lord says, the heart is deceitful, more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Okay, if I trust in the Lord, I'll be like a tree planted by water. But the problem is my heart is desperately sick. So I've got to get from being desperately sick to trusting in the Lord so that I can be clean. How, how does that work? Well, he goes on. <laughs> the, next, the next verse is just beautiful. Jeremiah 17, 11, As a partridge that hatches eggs, which it has not laid... So is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him, and in the end, he will be a fool. What's this all have to do with each other? God knows you, knows me, knows how we tick, and understands that giving, that making contributions, that getting rid of that, or passing along financial things to the Lord because I trust in the Lord, purifies my heart. It has an effect on me. Contributions to the camp of the Lord are not about, by the way, the camp of the Lord. They're about the person giving because they change the heart. Why? It's very simple. As I give to the Lord, it causes faith to rise in his ability to provide for me. I give because I trust he's the one who gave it to me in the first place. I did not work for it. You didn't earn that. Was Obama right? <laughs> I worked so hard for my money. That's great. That's wonderful. God's your provider. Not Shell Oil. God's your provider. Not the place of your business or work. God's your provider, not the sweat of your brow. And trusting in the Lord grows as we give to his camp. Rather than hatching schemes for our own fortunes, we trust in him. And if he blesses, as I've watched him do, there are some followers of Jesus that are incredibly blessed. Well, actually, we all are. We live in America 2021. We're pretty blessed people. But I, I've seen brothers and sisters in Christ, really, really fortunate people might say, well off, blessed and then you start to find out that they, they really trust in the Lord. And I've seen others that don't at all. And I've seen people who have very little struggling to trust that God's going to provide the next paycheck. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or in between. 
The issue is trust and faith, trusting in the Lord. And so the Lord says, listen, I want you to bring your contributions to the camp, Israel, because you got to learn to trust in me. You need to understand I am your provider. And that's why Jesus said, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. As you give to the Lord, your heart gets purified. God knows this. He knows how it works. That's why Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up money for themselves, the treasure of a good foundation for the future, not the future retirement, but the future kingdom. Store up to that, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Should I say this? I've told you before, when I say out loud, should I say this, Cheryl typically says out loud, then you probably shouldn't. <laughs> Rick, if you're asking, you probably shouldn't. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> she can't tell me what to do. <laughs> a third round of stimulus checks are being sent out. So a couple of questions. A, are you going to take it? No government is your provider, brothers and sisters. The government is not your provider. God is. God is. And what I wonder is how stimulated the church will be as a result of the stimulus checks. <laughs> Let's just let that hang out there. So how clean is this camp? How clean is this camp right here? This fellow, the Bridge Fellowship, how clean is this camp? In cleanliness, in confession, and compensation, and in contribution. That'd be a great place to end this sermon right here and now. God bless you. Go be cleansed. <laughs> but we have to go on. There's one more aspect of a clean camp, and I'm going to just read this through, so stay with me, beginning in verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him... And a man has intercourse with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. If a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he's jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself. So, so the issue here is the husband starts to suspect the wife. Something's not right here. And he starts to feel that, that jealous anger. Something's going on here. But he doesn't have proof of it. Either way, either if she's guilty or, or not guilty, he's feeling this way and he has no proof that any impropriety has happened. Verse 15 the man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. Barley was a poor man's bread. And 
He shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it's a grain offering of jealousy. This is not for worship. This is about your jealousy. A grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. Verse 16, then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, and he shall take some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The priest shall have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, if no man has lain with you and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness being under the authority of your husband, be immune or literally be cleansed of this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself and a, with a man, or, and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse, and the priest shall say to the woman, the Lord shall make you a curse, and an oath among your people by the Lord's making your thigh Waste away, and your abdomen swell. And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell, and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen and Amen. <laughs> the priest shall then write these curses on a scroll. <laughs> Watch this. He shall wash them off into the water of bitterness, and then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse, so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. The priest shall then take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and he shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And then the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and afterward he shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about if she has defiled herself and has become unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness, and her abdomen will swell, and her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, well, she'll then be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy when a wife, being under the authority of her husband, and by the way, note that it, this is a law of jealousy. When a wife under her husband, doesn't say being under the authority, it's not like the bossing and the lordship of her husband. This is when a wife under her husband, so we could also say under the covering of her husband. Under the covering of marriage, she's in that marital, covenantial, covered relationship, but she goes outside of it to another man. If she goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he's jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord, and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but that woman shall bear her guilt. God bless you all. Thanks for being here this morning. <laughs> Bizarre. Is God using a ritual potion to reveal adultery? How strange, how unusual in the Bible to read something like this. And if the woman's guilty, is it really true that one swig would make her abdomen swell and her thigh wither away? I'm talking to my daughter Naomi about this. 
By the way, side, side note, if you see Naomi, congratulate her. She just won Miss Teen Oak Harbor last night. Isn't that cool? Little sweetie. I told Naomi about this story. I said, you're not going to believe what we're going to talk about on Sunday. And I shared it with her, and she goes, what? <laughs> she goes, Dad, what if she's lactose intolerant with a chicken leg? <laughs> How does this work? And she's trying to figure this out. At the same time I was, I'm going, <laughs> I don't know how it works. One commentator says in Mishnah, it reads, quote, in the member with which she sinned, she will be punished. So let me explain a little bit this whole idea of abdomen swelling and thigh withering away. There's all kinds of guesses as to what that means or what it really looked like. But the point is this. The woman sinned in the region of her thigh and conceives in her belly. That's where ultimately you know, procreation brings about, conceiving in the belly. So it's the thigh and the belly that get cursed. It's the thigh and the belly that, that reveal what's really going on. So he says, the commentator, uh, Wenham says, therefore it is fitting that these organs should be the scene of her punishment. Interesting. Now, <laughs> before we deal with this perplexing procedure, you got to ask the question, what's it doing here? I mean, there's a lot of interesting and strange things throughout Torah law. There's things like don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, that's a little weird. The whole idea was that was pagan. That was pagan practice. There was pagan ritual involved. Don't do that because it looks like the pagans. And yet we come to something like this and say, okay, but this just sounds really, this sounds pagan. No offense, Lord, but this is very strange. We're mixing up a potion here with, with dust and ink for her to drink and it's going to make her belly swell up and her thigh is going to wither and, and there's going to be some effect. But again, what's it doing here? Lord, we're just trying to keep a clean camp. And you're bringing up this ritualistic law to deal with adultery. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. Listen, please understand. This is right where it should be. And the point is, before a holy God, both then and now, adultery defiles. Adultery makes unclean. Leviticus 18, verse 20, you shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. See, people don't understand this. They say, why does God give us marriage and make all these rules and laws about marriage? He gives us marriage, this beautiful, pure, picturesque thing. And then he says, by the way, don't mess it up. If I handed you a painting of the Mona Lisa that I had just personally finished painting, would you take it and splash something else all over it or dirty up or stick it out in the garage where grease and oil can get on it? And No, 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 you want to keep it pure. God gives marriage, says, I want you to keep it pure because if you mess with this thing, if you go outside of it, once you have joined yourself a man to a woman, once you've joined, you go outside of this, it's defiling. It just is. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And I know every time we talk about this kind of thing, I know there are people that squirm a little bit because of past indiscretions or past issues or past problems, divorces and adulteries and all of that. Please tune in to what God is saying to you right now here this morning. This is not about guilt and condemnation today. This is about the truth, the simple truth, that adultery is defiling. And note 
that when the Lord says the two shall become one flesh, the very next thing he says in Genesis 2, verse 25 is, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Because the marital relationship I have given you, the Lord would say, is not about shame and guilt. It's to be pure. That's the idea behind it. Adultery defiles what God intended to be pure. And more than that, not only does adultery defile, but defilement divides. And that's the problem with adultery. It not only defiles the marriage, but it divides what God has brought together. It causes a rift, if you will, And in Numbers chapter 5, look back at verse 6. What does he say? When a man or a woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, that person is guilty. He's talking about unfaithfulness. That's why he's talking. All of a sudden, the adultery test shows up here. Because cleanliness is faithfulness. There is purity in faithfulness. In fact, the word in verse 6 Acting unfaithfully there. Unfaithful is ma'al. Ma'al means to break faith. Anyone who acts with any of the sins of mankind is breaking faith with God, is dividing themselves from God by that defilement. Defilement, adultery is defilement. Defilement divides. And down in verse 27 of chapter 5. The same word is actually a different word in the Hebrew when he's made her to drink the water which is Then it shall come about if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband. Well, the word unfaithful there is timol, which means untrue or treacherous. Why is this here? This is what you need to not miss. And in fact, just give me a second. Lord, I pray that you would not allow false condemnation and old shame to surface so that we can hear what you're trying to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, across all time in history, God has been trying to teach us to speak the language of faith. To speak the pure language of faith. And whether it's in a marriage or Israel in the wilderness or the church in the wilderness with Christ, breaking faith is adultery. Do you hear me? Breaking faith is adultery. Adultery is the whole picture of breaking faith with the one that we've been called to trust, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. To break faith with him is to act adulterously. Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Don't break faith with Jesus. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteous, let's just say unclean. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that is anyone who has sex outside of the marital relationship in any way, shape, or form, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God's word, not Rick's word, that's God's word. But I love that Paul says, such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. That's old, 
That's past. You were washed. You were made clean. Now trust the Lord. Now don't break faith with Jesus. Now walk clean. That's why this is here. That's why in, in the midst of cleaning the camp, this adultery test shows up. Because adultery is the picture of defilement which divides. But let's see if we can make some sense of this weird little ritual. The procedure itself is clear enough. In fact, God repeats it several times in the passage so that they will understand exactly what they're to do. The man brings the wife to the husband. In the case of marital jealousy, he's just feeling this, and there's no proof. And ladies, you might say, well, that's not fair if if she's innocent. No, actually, it is fair if she's innocent because it totally justifies her. It proves that she's right. So, So she gets to stand up and be counted as innocent. And the husband has to walk away going, I'm sorry. Yeah, you should be. So if she's innocent, it's good for her because she has proven innocent in the presence of the priest of the tabernacle and before her husband. If she's guilty, well, that's another thing. But the procedure's here. He brings the wife to the priest. The priest leads her through this ritual of, quote-unquote, the water of bitterness She has to accept the language of the curse, saying amen and amen, and she drinks it down. Now, understand, first of all, dusty, inky water doesn't necessarily taste bitter. It may taste gross, but it's not going to be bitter. It's not going to taste bitter. It's called the water of bitterness because the outcome is bitter. What happens after the fact? What comes of this could be bitter. Water of bitterness in the Hebrew is ma'im. Ma'im is the word water. Chamarim. Marim is that same root word as you've heard the word Mara. They called the place in the wilderness Mara, the waters of bitterness. So Mayim Hamarim, which doesn't necessarily mean water of bitterness. It may also mean tears of bitterness. Tears of bitterness. The outcome of this thing could be a very bitter event. But what does it mean then? Okay, so we see the procedure. They go through this. She drinks it. What does it mean that her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away or rot? What what are we talking about here, Lord? Josephus said that they believed the guilt brought on an abdominal dropsy or edema. The guilt did this. There was something in this this thing being brought to light that caused this. Uh, Even talking about an actual disease. Perhaps cervical or ovarian cancer might be what's being described here. How did it work? People have argued this one of two ways. And the argument continues even to current scholarship. Either it was psychosomatic, that the guilt of the woman brought into this ritual and the pressure of the procedure would be so intense she would make herself sick. And it would be revealed through her guilt and and the the sickness of the moment that she was, in fact, guilty, psychosomatic. The other explanation for it, and it's the one I subscribe to, is this would be supernatural. Don't be surprised at that, because so far we've seen a number of supernatural acts of God. And in, you know, incursions, if you will, of the Lord into the camp of Israel, acting supernaturally when the people sin. So that's not a new idea that God would actually intervene himself and cause this to happen. No reason to believe the outcome is anything other than God acting on what he alone would know to be true. He's the only one who could bring the truth out of this. 
So the holy water was taken from the bronze laver. Note this. It was taken from the bronze laver in the tabernacle court. It's the only place in the entire Bible, by the way, where you see the, the phrase holy water is in this ritual. One time. It's the only place you see holy water. And it's probably because of that taken out of the bronze laver and put into this, this container. The dust is taken off of the tabernacle floor, wherever the tabernacle is. Why? Because the presence of God is there. What did God tell Moses? Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. So you're going to pick up some holy ground, put it into the holy water. In the presence of God, and who is it that the woman has to swear this oath before? God. Amen and amen, she has to say. And the commentator, Timothy Ashley, says, the theocentricity of this passage keeps it from slipping into the realm of magic or potions. God is the major actor in this ritual drama. None of it takes place without him. So any way you pour it, the cup represents bitterness and wrath for breaking faith with a holy God. That's the issue. Not that the marriage wasn't important, not that that relationship breaking isn't a bad thing, but the real issue is breaking faith with God, which is why the husband brings the wife before God, and God deals with this, with this cup of water of bitterness. Isaiah 51, 17, by the way, says, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, it is well mixed, he pours out of this, surely all the wicked of the earth must drink and drain down its dregs, the cup of wrath. You might say, well, okay, but why is the woman brought and not the man? Where's the man in all of this? The man is unknown at this point because the husband only suspects something's going on. So the man is, is hidden at, you know, the woman. He suspects the woman, and that's why this has to do with her. And by the way, in fairness, there are other passages in Torah that condemn both the adulterous man and the adulterous woman if they're caught. If they're caught, they are both worthy of stoning, the two of them together. She's not caught here. The woman here is just suspected. And if she's not guilty, again, she's immediately justified in the midst of the camp. She was right and true. He was just a jealous fool. And the punishment here, it's interesting, the punishment isn't death. The punishment is a curse. It's a specific curse. Verse 27 when he's made her drink the water, then it shall come about if she's defiled herself and be unfaithful to her husband. The water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness and her abdomen to swell and her thigh will waste away and the woman will become a curse among her people. Translation, childless. The greatest curse of a woman in Israel would be to be childless. But why the elaborate ritual? I mean, if that's all it's about, if it's just about God bringing this to light, why does he take them through this ritual? Why does God do anything he does? Much of the time, it's because he's teaching. He's teaching. He's teaching his people through example, through graphic representation. He's speaking too. And by the way, not just teaching Israel back in the day, he's teaching us this morning right now. God is teaching. Note this. There is no record either in Torah law, in the Hebrew scriptures, in rabbinical literature, in the New Testament, anywhere in the Bible, there is no record that this law was ever used. 
that it was ever put into place. In fact, because of that, and down through history, because they can't point to any time when this unique Numbers chapter five ritual was used, rabbis believe it was given, listen, as a deterrent to adultery by a loving father who says, this is what you're gonna do if if this is true. I mean, just knowing that this was a possibility would be a great deterrent. I think we've lost sight of the power of deterrence when it comes to sin. Punishment is often spoken ahead of time simply to deter us from going down that road. If you know this is the end result of this behavior, don't go that way. And it works. It really does work. If I know I'm going to go to hell by rejecting God, that does weigh on me. Well, not now. I'm saved by grace. But the fact that, side note, the fact that the church doesn't teach the reality and the truth of hell and condemnation is taking away a deterrent from the world that the world needs. People need to think about this and go, this is a reality. God doesn't tell us about hell. Jesus didn't talk about hell so often because he wanted to just scare people for the sake of scaring them. He wanted to provide a deterrent from breaking faith with God. And this law, the rabbis say it was a law of deterrence. That's what it is. What woman would want to go through this? What an awful thing. So just don't, don't go there. And again, listen to this. The marital picture The marital picture here is at issue, this whole idea of adultery, but it is a bigger picture than human marriages. What do you mean? In the Old Testament, God refers to himself often as the husband of Israel, and Israel is the adulterous wife. In the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom and the church his betrothed bride. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in the same passage in verse 32, he says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul says this whole marital example I'm talking about of of wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives. Yeah, you should do that. It'll make your marriage healthy, but that's not the point. The point is Christ and the church. The point is Jesus and his church. What a beautiful picture begins to emerge out of such a strange ritual. Watch this. Think about it. The priest took an earthen vessel. An earthen vessel. The Bible often, in more than one place, speaks of the human body as an earthen vessel. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, probably the most well-known to you. We have this treasure, speaking of the Spirit of God, in earthen vessels, in our bodies, in our physical person, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. So note that the priest gets an earthenware vessel, picturing, portraying often in the Scriptures, the human body. But, But this is an unusual earthen vessel in that you pour holy water into it. Holy water? Hey, water in the Bible is a type of really two things, the word of God and the spirit of God. This is an earthenware vessel filled with holy water. Hmm. The word 
became flesh. We might say Jesus became an earthenware vessel. And we saw his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. John 7.38. Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit. So we have a picture of a human form, earthenware vessel, filled with living water. But, but that's not all. The priest then takes the dust from the tabernacle floor. And the, he, he, he pours it into the holy water, the earthenware vessel, and then washes into this same thing, into this holy water, he washes the inky words of the curse. The curse goes into the holy water in the earthenware vessel. My brothers, my sisters, this is a picture, I think, of Jesus absorbing the curse. Jesus, the earthenware vessel, spirit of God, because it's his spirit. But the dust and the ink go in. He absorbs this, the curse of our adultery. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so we might become, what? The righteousness of God in him, clean, pure. And as if to be sure we did not miss this, he wrote down in the Bible a shockingly literal example of exactly what we're talking about. Early in the morning, John chapter 8, verse 2, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down, began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her at the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. See, anything he answered, if he's gracious, he violates the law. If he keeps the law and stones her, all the people will now hate him because he's not the man of grace they thought he was. There's no answer for this. We got him, they think. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Where did he write? In the dust of the temple court, like the dust of the tabernacle. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. What did Jesus write? We don't know. Some think maybe he was writing the most recent sins of the Pharisees. <laughs> oh, some think he was just writing their names in the earth. And many of them being Bible scholars themselves would remember Jeremiah 17. My name is being written in the dust of the earth. He's condemning me. I am at fault. I'm wrong here. I don't know. I don't know what he was writing. He may have just been looking down so as not to shame the woman. But verse 7 continues. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. And he said, he was without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her puts it right back in their court. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. When he says, he who is without sin, the indication, the implication is he who is without the same sin. 
Any of you ever committed adultery? If you haven't, go ahead and throw a stone. <laughs> wow. Let me just ask you this morning, who among us is 100% guiltless of adultery? Don't raise your hand too quick. I've been faithful to my wife now for almost 35 years of marriage, but I have not been faithful to my God. I cannot say straight through that all my life I have never broken faith with God. And every one of us here has at some level, at some point, at some time, committed adultery against God. We have broken faith. I mean, think about it. Have you? Have you ever broken faith with Jesus Christ, your bridegroom? Well, never overtly. Okay. How about in here? Verse 9 continues that going out, they heard him say this, and they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, because they knew. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No one, Lord. And that's telling, because for someone to be condemned by Israeli law, Israelite law, you had to have two witnesses. In doing what Jesus did, he emptied the court of any witnesses. Jesus himself couldn't even condemn her, because he was not a witness. He kept the law and kept grace. Why? Because Jesus is grace and truth. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Sin no more. He knew she had sinned. He's Jesus. She knew she had sinned. But forgiveness was his to give. Why? Because, listen, because Jesus was just about, in a matter of months, he was just about to absorb her curse and yours and mine. The vessel filled with the Spirit of God that took in the curse upon himself. You know what this really bizarre Torah law would do? It would break the spirit of jealousy right out of a marriage. So the husband could have been absolutely wrong to be jealous of his wife. And so in bringing her before the priest, when this thing was born out and she was proven innocent, what would happen? The spirit of jealousy would be broken. And when the spirit of jealousy was broken out of the marriage, husband and wife could be free and clean to love again. Well, you said this was never used. I know, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking in, in terms of a picture here. That the law always leaves a curse on the imperfect and the impure, and that's us. But when the curse is broken, we, the one-time adulterous woman, the unfaithful, the curse, when the curse is broken, suddenly we are made clean. Under the curse... What would happen? We walk under the curse. We hide our sin. We refuse to confess. We keep it to ourselves, and we, we stay in that place of shame. What happens? Our thighs rot. We can't walk well. Our walk suffers in Jesus. And our bellies swell up, but not with food, not with nutrition, with emptiness. The emptiness that the world provides. It's what happened, by the way, to Israel in the wilderness. Psalm 106, 13. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And we're going to see that when they launch out into the wilderness. So he gave them their request. 
but sent a wasting disease among them. We can pursue all these things. And it seems to fill up at first, but it is empty calories of sin and disease. But we're brought to the high priest of our confession, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus Christ. And Jesus forgives, and Jesus purifies, and Jesus absorbs the curse of our sin on himself. Why? To make us pure and clean. And we're made pure and clean. And this is point number four, by the way. Remember what they were? Clean out the camp, right? Confess and compensate. Contribute to the camp. And number four, we're made clean and pure. To do what? To conceive. To conceive children in the camp. Again, in verse 28, but if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, and you are in Jesus, she will then be free and conceive children. Those who are free in Christ Jesus, made pure by Christ Jesus, now can conceive. Why would the woman conceive? Well, because her husband saw her as faithful after all. So they go home and (laughs) make up. In our case, having been justified by the love and the the faithfulness of Jesus, we are now free to conceive in love. Not with chicken legs and bloated bellies. In a clean camp, we are set free to confess, to compensate to one another, to contribute to the camp of the saints, and even to conceive by the power of Christ. And Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain. And that's why we talk about the gospel. We have actually been invited by God to bear fruit for the kingdom. To talk about Jesus, to share Jesus, to invite people to know Jesus. And that becomes fruitful as they give their lives to Jesus. All this to say, purity matters. Purity matters because only those made pure in Christ will be, as Paul wrote, Ephesians 3.19, filled up to all the fullness of God. John 1.16 tells us, for us of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. And Colossians 2.9 says, for in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete. Literally, you have been made full. Once the camp is clean, it's really not so hard to keep a clean camp. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for the beautiful example in scripture that was once perhaps a confusing ritual becomes a clear picture. Lord Jesus, of your absorbing the sin of our defilement, of our adulterous state, that we might be clean before you. So unworthy, so unjustified in and of ourselves, and yet you have come along and made us clean. Father, I just pray we would understand, and I pray people listening would get the fact that it is by faith in Jesus Christ we are clean. There is no other way. Your word is absolutely clear. Jesus, you said, I am the way and the truth and the life No one comes to the Father but through me. 
You made it all about yourself. I pray that we will put faith and trust in you completely. And in so doing, receive the purification, the cleanness that you provide. We bless your name, Lord, and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.